Good morning, church. It is good to see you all. It is good to be with you today. I hope that you got outdoors yesterday. We got a door open, so we got a little bit of sunshine uh, peeking its way in here yesterday. Was it a gorgeous day yesterday? It was so nice out there. I did get a bike ride in uh, before the sunset, just as dark as uh, dark set upon us. But the greatest thing uh, about being outside yesterday, the, the, the thing that was so exciting was I went to a soccer game. I mean, it has been... Now, some of you are like, what what are you talking about? What's so exciting about that? It has been a year since a parent could go to a sport, sporting event, and watch their children in a uniform with referees play a game. And I was able to go and watch a soccer game. Like, it, it was like... It's been a year since like parents, you know, normally every weekend parents do this pilgrimage with beach chairs and from the car to the soccer game and watch their kids play this. And we got to do it yesterday and it felt so good and it was such a joy to be out there. And my daughter's team won her game. I think it was 3-0 or something like that. Or it was, it was, it was a, a dominant performance. But aside from the performance, it was just so good to be outside with other parents and experiencing uh, normal life. It is coming. The light at the end of the tunnel is getting brighter. The uh, COVID cloud is lifting. And it was just, just a great day to be outside and experience that. Well, we are going to jump into this paragraph, this unit of scripture today, verses 17 through 24 of Romans 2. But let me just kind of set the stage here. And a lot of you who, who've been listening online or have been here in recent weeks, you kind of know the stage. I've gotten comments like, hey, there's a lot of wrath in here. There, there's a lot of judgment, a lot of condemnation. And yes, from the latter part of chapter 1 through chapter 2, There is a lot of condemnation and harsh words coming from the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. So just to summarize it a little bit, beginning in the middle of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 1, we have this condemnation going to everyone, to all human beings who, who look at creation and suppress the truth because the evidence of God is there in the sunset, in the mountains, in the forest, at the beach, in in the stars, the evidence for God is there. The evidence for the creator. But that truth has been suppressed. And all human beings have suppressed it and disobeyed him. And so there's condemnation for everyone. And then we move into chapter 2. And there's a new sort of condemnation. And that is to those who have the scriptures. There is a condemnation to the Jews. Paul is a Jew himself. The Bible, Paul is not anti-Semitic. But in chapter 2, what he's saying is the Jews who have the scriptures have also missed the central teaching of the power of the gospel going back to verse 16. And so there is judgment to those who don't have access to the scriptures. And there is judgment to those who do have the scriptures. So we have to do some work to find connection with these paragraphs and chapters that that most of us don't receive readily. That's what's behind these comments. Like, yeah, there's a lot of wrath. There's a lot of judgment. There is. And so before we get into this paragraph 17 through 24, I want to say that we actually have a lot of points of identity 
uh, lots of points of connection with the Jewish Christians in the first century. They had access to the scriptures. They were the Bible people. Uh, they, they, they weren't the ones who were just being given over to their own lusts. But they were, they were confident in the scriptures and they had access to specific truths about Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. But they missed it. They missed it. In fact, let's go back briefly. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. In, in chapter 2, and, and we're about to get to our paragraph in verse 17 in a second, but just to remind you, in chapter 2, Paul is doing this literary technique where he is imagining an individual Jewish person. I'm suggesting it is a Jewish Christian. And, and so the reader is supposed to put themselves in the place of this imaginary person who's referred to as you in chapter 2, verse 1. You, singular, therefore have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So back to 2.1, these themes of judgment and hypocrisy are all throughout chapter 2. And I'm suggesting, this isn't a great thing to want to suggest, but that judgment are, and hypocrisy are points of identification and connection that we have with these Jewish Christians in the first century. Now what they've done is they've put their Jewishness and their Jewish culture here, and they've put the gospel here. They've put their Jewishness here, and they've put the gospel here. Now, we don't put our Jewishness there, and almost none of us here, or none of you hearing my voice hardly, are Jewish people, but we put other things here and put the gospel and put the Lord Jesus here. And we have a tendency towards judgmentalism, toward others, and we have a tendency towards hypocrisy as well. And so we have points of connection even with these ancient peoples from the church of Rome and these small house churches in the first century. In short, Paul is making these first century folks aware of their hypocrisy, so they move away from it. And in short, the message of today's paragraph and today's sermon is that all of us should admit, yes, we too are hypocrites, but the hope of the gospel can move us from that, and there is hope for us. That's why the Bible was written, to give us hope and to transform us. So with all of that as background, let's take a look at our text, verses 17 through 24. We'll begin with verses 17 through 20, verses 20, 17 to 20. So he, he's continuing this theme, this literary theme of this imaginary person that he's writing with and the reader enters in and the reader knows that this is what Paul's doing. So he's continuing this in verse 17. He says, now you, you, you Jewish Christian, and then he actually is explicit here in verse 17, which he hasn't been all the way through chapter going back to 2.1, but he's explicit. He says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, and boast about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, let's just pause here for just a moment. What we have in verses 17 through 20 is, is the beginning of an if-then clause. It's the if part. And so he's gone through these, this series 
of suggestions in verses 17 through 20. Beginning with, um, if you rely on the law and boast about your relationship to God. So this is something that was common. And this is actually something that's presented positively here. Now, if you read verses 17 through 20 and take this negatively, you're, you're reading it incorrectly. The ancient Jew in the first century bragged about the scriptures in a positive way, boasted about the scriptures. We have the revealed will of God. Here's a point of connection between us and them. And they boasted in that. And it is something to boast about. We have the scriptures. And we have this relationship with God. We have been adopted into his family. You know his will. Unlike the Gentiles in chapter 1 who've been given over in their lust and are just partying and just going in all kinds of different directions, moving from thing to thing to thing, you know there is one God and you should serve him and approve of what, his, of what is superior. This is what characterizes a Jew in the first century. Verse 19, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, again, a point of connection with us. We are a city on the hill. We are a light that cannot be hidden. And this is how a Jew thought of themselves, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the scriptures, you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So this is all positive stuff in verses 17 through 20. The Jews were the people upon whom God's favor particularly rested. And Paul expected the reader to interpret every item in this list positively. And we can identify, even as non-Jewish believers, 2,000 years away, we can identify with many of these things. So the positivity ends here. Uh, we have the scriptures. We are under its authority. We have a lot of point of connection with them. But then Paul lays into them in the verses that follow in verses 21 through 23. Let's take a look at it. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, who boast about it, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And the answer, implied answer to all of these questions are yes. Yes. What God is getting at here to the Jews in the first century is that they are hypocrites. That is what each of these questions, these three questions, are clarifying Paul's attack of hypocrisy. You who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Now, let me just pause here and, and say something about these specific attacks that Paul is labeling. He is not saying that each Jewish Christian in these house churches in Rome did any or all of these things. These are pretty exceptional things that are going on. If you were a Jew who boasted in the Torah and boasted in the law, uh, you were not someone who stole. You weren't someone who was a thief. Just like in general today, Christians are not thieves. Okay, uh, verse 22, you say that people should not commit, commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? 
Paul is not saying that everyone in the church who was Jewish was committing adultery. He's saying that happened. And he's saying that some people stole. And then the third one is maybe the most crazy. You who abhor idols. I mean, Jewish people were aware of idolatry, intensely aware of it. First and second commandment, all about avoiding other gods. And there's only one God. And so here's this accusation of robbing temples. Temples were full of of valuable things, high dollar items. So we might contextualize it by thinking about a bank. Uh, Today, people rob banks. But it is pretty rare to think of Christians as bank robbers. And it would be very rare in the first century to think of Jewish Christians as temple robbers, of, of people who went into pagan temples and stole these valuable items. But some of them did that. So what's going on here? He is identifying these uncommon sins that a few of the Jews that have, have done these things, not most, perhaps hardly any at all, And he's basically saying, do you have an awareness of how you are like them, even though you are not doing those specific things? So I want to suggest that's what he's saying to us today, this morning, that we have a tendency to distance ourselves from people who do certain things and think we're not like them. And Paul here, I suggest, and I'm along with many other commentators saying he's going way out of his way to say, actually, we are a lot like them that do these outrageous things. One commentator writes this. He says, it is not then that all Jews commit these sins, but that these sins are representative of the contradiction between claim and conduct that does pervade Judaism. And they have brought this in to the church. And so this is, this is what needs to hit us this morning. Our claims and our conduct. We need to be eager to say our claims of what the scriptures call us to and our conduct do not line up. We just did that communally, corporately in confession just a few moments ago. We have the Bible, we are under its authority, but we are a long way from boasting about how we have got it all together and looking down upon others. This is the disease that was there in the first century church in Rome, and Paul is trying to bring it to their attention and to ours. So the spirit with which a Jewish Christian in the first century might be reading this passage. John Stott brings out this passage. This is how they might respond. Surely, Paul, you can't possibly treat us as if we were no different from Gentile outsiders. Those things that are in the second half of chapter 1. Have you forgotten that we have been given both the law the revelation of God and circumcision, the sign of the covenant of God? Are you saying that we Jews who have been uniquely favored by God's election are no better off than Gentiles? How can you disregard these peculiar blessings of ours which distinguish us from the Gentiles and protect us from God's judgment? Are you kidding? You're lumping us in with them? This is the spirit with which Paul is expecting the reader to respond to this text. So I'm saying a few things this morning out of verses 21 through 23. The first is that members of the covenant community are ideal candidates for hypocrisy, and this includes us. 
why are you and I ideal candidates for hypocrisy is because we are people of the book, people of the word. And we need to be honest with ourselves. If someone knows you really well, lives in your home with you, or spends every day with you at work, and they know that you are a follower and a proclaimer of the gospel and of the law and of God's word, you are a person who is an ideal candidate for them to see your hypocrisy. I am an ideal candidate. I'm especially ideal because I'm standing up here. And so I am acknowledging before you all my own hypocrisy. You have it. I have it. We do not live consistently. And so this is not the spirit with which some of these Jewish Christians were living. They were putting themselves and their Jewish traditions up here and looking down on others. Judging as hypocrites. So we need to recognize that you and I, we are ideal candidates. So what's the solution here? Uh, Where uh, do we go from here? Uh, Jesus gets at it in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? And pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye? When all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your coworker, their sin is going to become a speck when you rightly look into your own soul and your own heart and your own mind and you see your own distance from what the scriptures call us to. And so... Notice, it doesn't say not to go for the speck. It is to go for the speck from an attitude of humility and uh, self-reflection and and confession and and soul-searching that happens so that when I talk to my brother or my sister or my child or my neighbor or my coworker about their issue, I have already gone through my own and I I come alongside them from this posture of someone who sees the plank in their own eye. This is what God is calling us to. Only after rigorous self-examination am I in a place to consider another person's speck. The Jews had their law, and we have our own law and demands of the gospel. You know, it's interesting that this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Think of some of the demands in there. Think of what God has called you to. To love your neighbor. To not only your neighbor, but your enemy. God has called us to love our enemies. Does the church of Jesus in the United States in 2021 have a reputation for loving our enemies? Do we? We don't. What do they call us? Haters often. Haters. That is the reputation that we have. 
So we're getting a little taste here of how we actually have points of connection with first century Jews who are looking down on others and not seeing the plank in their own eyes. If you meditate on the Sermon on the Mount and you look at your own life day in and day out, you are going to see a lot of distance from what God has called you to and the way that you're living but there is hope and there is a way forward. There's, this, is, this is sounding discouraging. And so once again, we're going to need to jump out of this section of, of wrath and, and condemnation to find other texts that give us hope and the way forward. What is the way forward out of this situation? If we just preach this paragraph and end, it can be really discouraging. All, from halfway through chapter 1 through chapter 2, there's a lot of condemnation and wrath and so on coming our way. So let's take a look briefly at Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to put it up on the screen, but here, here, here's the second point. So first, we are ideal candidates for hypocrisy. Did you get that, church? Say yes. We are ideal candidates. The world out there, they're not holding this Bible up and saying, we're going to obey this. We are following God. They're not saying that. So they're not ideal candidates. They're just given over. Back to chapter 1, latter part of chapter 1. But we have the scriptures, so we're ideal candidates. So we prioritize our own obedience, our own holiness, not that of others. That's what we see in Matthew Seven in those words of Jesus. And it's really what Paul is getting at in verses 21 through 23. Why is he choosing these radical, egregious examples, stealing expensive items from, uh, t- from pagan temples, which very few Jews would have been doing that, whether they're in the church or outside of the church. He's choosing that, this hyperbole, for, so that people will look at their own selves and their own hearts. So now Matthew 11, where do we go? Where do we find help here? What are we supposed to look like? What are we supposed to do? There's lots of answers to that question, but let me just give you one here. Jesus is speaking in Matthew 11, and he says, I tell you the truth, which is his way of saying, hey, pay attention, guys. Listen up. This is really important. I tell you the truth. I mean, he always told the truth, but it's not like I told you falsehoods before. It's like, listen up. Among those born of women, which is a phrase just just means of all humanity. So of all human beings, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. I mean, that's quite a saying. If we just pause there. Of all humanity. So Jesus is aside. He's fully human, but fully God. So aside from him, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So there's not a lot of affirmation or greatness coming to the ways of, of, of Jews here in this paragraph. So why is this one getting it? Why is he getting it? Why is he so great? And then, I'm going to answer that in a moment. But before I answer that, the second part of this is the most encouraging verse. There's a lot of discouragement in this paragraph in Romans 2. But here's a massive amount of encouragement for you and me. He or she who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. That is the scripture speaking to you and to me. When we die, there are not going to be people, I'm talking to everyone in this room, almost certainly there are not going to be people reading our books, watching our videos, or talking about us in future generations. 
We, we don't have national or international audiences. We are least in the kingdom of heaven. We are servants. I'm talking about every one of us here. And the scripture is saying that the least person, the, the servant in my kingdom can be greater than John the Baptist. That is good news, that latter part. That is encouraging. Are you receiving that this morning, church? That is good news. So you and I, the Bible is telling us in Matthew 11, Jesus is telling us that you and I can be greater than John the Baptist. So now we need to go back. What makes John the Baptist so great? Now, he was obedient. He was holy. And we ought to be also. But I want to suggest that the, at the core, at the emphasis of who John the Baptist is, is he is the final, the culminating prophet. Before the death and resurrection of Jesus, we could consider John the Baptist the final Old Testament prophet. And what did he do better than every other Old Testament prophet is he pointed to Jesus. This is at the heart of who John the Baptist is. Pointing literally to the Messiah who has come, Jesus. Prophets before him have done that, but he has done it in a way none of them have in person and in real life. And so, if we can come to the scriptures from a posture of humility and gentleness, recognizing that we're hypocrites and our boast is in Christ, we too can point to the gospel in a way that even John the Baptist couldn't because we live this side of the cross. John the Baptist lived over here before the cross, before the resurrection. Every believer who's lived since that time can point to the gospel in a way that John the Baptist couldn't. So this is hope for us. This is hope for us. Even though we are hypocrites, we can acknowledge that and we can grow in the Lord and can be great in his kingdom because our broken lives nonetheless point to King Jesus and his greatness and his beauty. That's not what was going on here in this paragraph. That's why Paul's using such harsh language and might God make us that Way. So number three, the Christ follower's life points to Christ crucified and risen and the accessibility of this good news to anyone. The first century Jewish believers were making the hurdle high and saying, no, this isn't accessible to anyone. You need to become like us. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do this. No, it is accessible to all. It is accessible to every one of us. Let's come back. I, I've left one verse out. Final verse today is verse 24. Look at it with me. It says, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Gentile community does not have a good witness because of the covenant community, the Jewish community. They, they've blown it. They actually crucified the Messiah. They, they haven't really been what they have called to be. And this is the last kind of harsh thing that is said here in this paragraph. Their sin placed them under the dominion of Rome. They're not even in charge of themselves. The deliverance promised in Isaiah had not come from their view, but that deliverance had come in the Messiah, but many of them had missed it or they saw the Messiah come, but they wanted to continue with all of these regulations and make people jump through hoops. They've had their Jewishness here and the Messiah here. 
So, this community is not very compelling. That's why this language is here in this paragraph. But the early church in the next few centuries becomes incredibly compelling. And it experienced astonishing growth in the first few centuries of the church after the apostles. A few, a few statistics here. About 40% growth per decade. This small group of, of, of a Jewish sect within Judaism who recognized Jesus as the Messiah exploded in growth. So by the time Constantine takes the throne... Historians tell us there were about 6 million Christians. 6 million. How did that happen? It didn't happen by them being full of hypocrisy and judgmentalism. This got rooted out. What Paul is writing about in Romans chapter 2. It went away. And the early church became incredibly compelling. It was not egotistical. It was not full of itself. It was not prideful. It was not looking down upon others. So what, what made it so compelling? Well, I wanted to share a couple things with you before I close from a historian's perspective. Uh, first off, uh, this is from the book Ancient Faith for the Church's Future. It says the early Christians did not engage in public preaching. It was too dangerous. There are practically no evangelists or missionaries whose names we know after the apostolic era in the first couple centuries of the church. After Nero's persecution in the mid-first century, the churches in the Roman Empire closed their worship services to visitors. Deacons stood at the church's doors serving as bouncers, checking to see that no unbaptized person, no lying informer, could come into the private space the enclosed garden of the Christian community. Services like these were closed off and you couldn't come in until after you had been discipled and baptized, which generally took about a year. What made this church grow such exponential ways? Again, these historians suggest two things and we'll close by sharing these with you and pray that we would reflect upon who we are as a people in light of this passage. Final point, I didn't mean to pull that up now, but here's my final point for you note takers. The view of outsiders is telling. And the view of outsiders in the first couple centuries of the church was, for many of them, we want what you have and we're, we want to work our way into these closed buildings. So let me read to you just a couple things that these historians mention. They mention uh, two things. I'm mentioning one. One, that the church was not egotistical. It was not judgmental. It was not looking down on others. Number two, they suggest it was uh, Christians had a spiritual power. A spiritual power. Let me read to you what they write. What was it about the Christians that attracted the pagans in these first couple centuries of, of the church in the Roman Empire? One of these attractions was spiritual power. Non-Christians observed that the Christians, even at their weakest, embodied a power that could be construed as divine. In the year 202, in the amphitheater in Carthage, the soldier Pudens was assigned to oversee the execution of Christians on the emperor's birthday. But Pudens realized, the Christians reported, quote, that we possess some great power within us. 
Shortly thereafter, Putin's became a believer. The power manifested itself in the Christian's inexplicable strength under torture and persecution. This power was evident in healings which were rumored to take place in Christian circles. This power was also evident in exorcisms. Many people in the Greco-Roman world felt themselves in bondage to fate and imprisoned by demonic powers. In the Christian churches, there were gifted people, healers, exorcists, People who prayed that people would be liberated from bondage. And this went on and attracted people to the church. When conversations took place in the workplaces, they often had to do with spiritual power. I'm sorry your son is ill. We have people who can pray for him. May we help you. This was the reputation of the church in the world. And then we'll finish up with this. The second thing historians are saying about the early church And how it went through this extraordinary growth and was so compelling to the world around it. A second attraction was the distinctive behavior of the Christians. Who had question-posing ways of addressing common problems in societies. Consider babies, for example. The Christians were committed to the sanctity of life and opposed killing in all forms. Abortion, war, gladiatorial games, and capital punishment. This is also true in the culturally accepted custom of discarding unwanted babies. Not only did the Christians refuse to discard their own babies, even when their families were large, they also went to the dumps and rescued unwanted babies of pagan parents whom they proceeded to raise as their own children. These rescued babies, often girls, are one reason that the proportion of females was extraordinarily high in Christian communities. The church did not stay, back to our text, as a people who put this judgmentalism and egoism over these other people and put all kinds of hoops and said, here's what you need to be, and put Christ down here. The the, the church flipped and put Christ and their lives front and center, the lives of their neighbors front and center, and cared for them in the ways that they actually took them into their homes and raised them as their own children. This made a testimony to the world outside and contributed to the incredible growth of the church in the first centuries. Now, we want to see growth in the church in our country instead of decline, which is what we've seen. Where it begins, church, is with you and with me and as individuals. And let's bow our heads and pray that God would help you and me to be humble people who put Christ and the gospel first and are compelling witnesses to those around us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess again to you that we are ideal candidates for hypocrisy. Help us not to be so defensive when others criticize us of that but we actually are honest with them and acknowledge the undeserved favor, the grace of Jesus as what makes us different. Lord, I pray that you would help us to run from selfishness and egoism and and us versus them kind of mentality and that we would be the kind of people that show the gospel to be accessible to everyone and anyone. And it is good news. Help us to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, and to show the beauty of our God in the way that we live our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.